Where does a myth come from? Where does a story that you believe in that isn't true come from? What good is it? Is it any good? Is it dangerous? A story that you've heard that you don't believe to be true, but people do believe to be true? Some people believe it firmly. Some people don't believe it at all. Some people want to fight over it. Some people think you're stupid for thinking about it. Am I talking about movies? Am I talking about politics? Am I talking about the Christmas story? How much of the Christmas story that you believe in is a myth? How would you know? Well, the answer, how you would know, is well, what's the Bible say? That's how you would know. What's the Bible say is the Christmas story. That's what happened. But of course, there's a lot of people that don't believe that either. They think the Bible is the myth. The Bible is just one of the stories like all the other stories, and we can treat it the same way. It, it might lead you astray. Be careful. It could be wrong in a few spots. Now, here at St. Paul, we don't teach that, but it's out there. So the question still remains, so where did the myth come from? This story about Jesus, this, this grand meta-narrative that begins with things like, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. I don't know if you ever read any of the Hindu scriptures, Bhagavad Vita and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't say things like, in the days of Caesar Augustus. It doesn't talk about history. So one of the ways you can tell a myth from history is that the myth does just claim to be a story. It claims to be some total overarching picture. It doesn't get down in the dirt usually. Now, sometimes it will. Homer's Odyssey or, or Homer's Iliad, there's some, some realistic stuff. There probably was a Troy. It probably did get sacked by Greeks. But you get into it, and suddenly there's all this other stuff that's it's just a lot more like story. And you don't have a real connection to the history that we live, you and I, right? The Gospels of Jesus Christ very clearly make that connection. And they do it with things like, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. This isn't a claim to be a neat tale. This is saying that there was a time in the history of man that was as civilized or maybe more civilized than we are today, that kept records like nobody's business and never lost it on their smartphone. We still have the records, unlike the stuff on your smartphone, which won't be here in a thousand years. But the stuff from Rome, Caesar Augustus, is still here. That's how powerful they were. And in those days, Jesus came. A man like the men of the history, only so different that he changed history. So different that nobody, even those who were waiting for him, were ready for him. Let's just hear a little more about what he did, what happened. Well, I love how this, we didn't read this part. It's from Matthew. Where Gabriel comes to Joseph, remember this? Tells him that he should marry his fiancée Mary, even though she's pregnant. And his job, according to the law of Moses, is to have her killed. But Gabriel shows up and says, you know, she didn't commit adultery, so she doesn't deserve to be killed. So you should marry her anyway. So God sends the angel Gabriel to tell him this. He listens to this, that this is good. 
He names him Jesus because of all of this. But then God doesn't tell him, by the way, you need to move to Bethlehem. Because for him to actually be the Messiah who's the son of David, he has to also be born in Bethlehem. Gabriel could have said that. Gabriel didn't say that. Instead, guess who says it? Caesar Augustus. It's just to make sure you know who the God of history is. He doesn't have Gabriel tell Joseph where to go. He has the king of the entire world do it for him. And it's all about taxes. I mean, can you imagine how Joseph felt about this? I got to go pay tax, right? This isn't the beginning of the Christmas story the way I hear it told. We got to go pay our dues. More history in verse 2. The first uh, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, uh, people used to debate whether Quirinius was real. Historians in the 1800s, oh, that guy, we don't even have records of that guy. Probably was made up. Yeah, guess what? We found the records. Yeah. When people come scoffing at the scripture, you just scoff right back, honestly. Like, it, the, the scripture will prove itself true. Quirinius, uh, he's a real dude. He governed Syria. Long story. Verse 3, and all went to be registered each to his own town. That's the setup. This is where you get Mary and Joseph on the donkey. That's part of the myth, right? You see him on the donkey moving toward the crash, right? What's the crash? The picture of the nativity, the scene that we all have a version of somewhere. How much of that's true is my question tonight. Not because I really want you to change your crush, by the way. Lutherans can be really obnoxious like this. Like, well, we know something's not entirely true, so you better change. Eh. The point here is for you to ask, what is true? And what I want you to be convicted of is that the scriptures are true. And the pictures that the society tells you about God, whatever it's meaning, whether it's Jesus or some other God, they're often only half true. And I hope to show you that with just a few points here again uh, from the text. They each go to their own town. That means he's got to go down to Bethlehem. It's going to tell us that in verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Notice I said down to Bethlehem because I'm from California, so we go down to places, I guess. I don't know how I grew up saying going down. The text says going up, though, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's an ascent. It's a physical ascent, right? Um, When we drive in our cars, we don't really think about, like, did I go down to downtown Rockford or did I have to go up? We don't think that way. Um, But they had to go up to Bethlehem. They had to ascend into the mountains to get there. It could have meant Jerusalem when it says city of David, but it insists, no, no, no. Not the city David built, not the city of the great king from where he will reign, the city where David was born because he was of the house and lineage of David. This guy's royalty, not just this guy. There's two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible, Matthew and Luke. They are distinct. They are different from each other on certain threads. And that's because it's Mary's and Joseph's genealogies. That is, it is their history as a family, tracing the names back to their fathers, 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 fathers. You can't even imagine. You don't know this about your family, but they did. And his family went all the way back to King David, who had ruled over this entire area with the name of God as his power. His son, Solomon, ruled with the name of God and God's wisdom as his strength. This guy's just a carpenter, but he's royalty. He's got the prince's blood inside of him, yeah? With Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. She's pregnant. So here's, here's the image from like the movies, right? So she's on the, on the donkey because she's pregnant. Okay, that's maybe true. You seen a donkey in the text yet though? No donkey. Okay, so I mean, it doesn't matter. You got a donkey in your crash, it's fine. But just know it's not, that's the myth, okay? 
That's the myth. What's true? She's pregnant. Here they come on the donkey, pregnant. And, and what time of day is it as they're getting to town in the story? It's like midnight, right? Like everything's closed. Right? A bunch of closed signs everywhere. And, and they're barely getting there. And, and then what do they do? They go to a, a hotel, right? And she's like having birth pains right now. She's like, oh my gosh, the baby's coming. Right? Right now. And he's like, hey, uh, Mr. Hotel Owner, do you see my wife's pregnant? Oh my gosh, she's screaming. He's like, I can't help you. Shuts the door. Right? That's how the story goes. We're going to get a little bit of where that might have come from in a moment, but I I want you to think of two things. You ever going to shut the door on a screaming pregnant lady? Ever? Nobody in the world is going to do that, especially nobody in the near Middle East who are far more hospitable than we snarky Westerners. Truly, they would never do this, least of all to someone who's actually royalty. So you got three things there. The need of a woman in crisis, hospitality beyond Western imagination, and royal bloodlines in the family where, or in the city where that royalty belongs. No one's shutting any doors to these people. You have to read that into this text. Now, there's a moment where where you'll see where it comes up, but I want you to have this all in mind here, right? What made you think it was late at night? What made you think it's a crisis? The text hasn't said that at all, right? In fact, verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. If you look at the Greek, it says, while they were there, the days of her childbearing were fulfilled. It doesn't sound like an emergency to me. Sounds pretty straightforward. Like they got into town, they found a place to go, had a couple days, and then baby came. Woohoo! Lots of midwives and stuff. Very easy. Kind of a celebration. So she gives birth, verse 7, to her firstborn son, wraps him in swaddling cloths. Okay, here's where it starts to get a little weird. Swaddling cloths, what are these? Uh, It's just kind of like wrappings. Um, It's a common practice to wrap a newborn baby, not necessarily to wash them, but to wrap that baby. Uh, And in the near Middle East, this is still done to this day in places like Syria. But just in case you don't believe me, we're going to take a little field trip here to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. It's on page 702. Ezekiel, a prophet mighty in the days of Babylon, uh, who we won't go into all the history of what he talks about everywhere, but he's talking to people from thousands of years ago about normal stuff to them. And in verse 4, he says this, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddled cloths. Now, all those things are normal things for them. In Ezekiel's day, wrapping a baby in swaddling cloths is like cutting the umbilical cord, like they do them together. And Ezekiel's prophecy is about how something bad's happening to somebody. This is an example of that. But what you can see here is that swaddling claws isn't exactly like out of the blue weird emergency. Pretty normal. Pretty normal for them. Okay, so back in Luke, chapter 2, verse 7, page 857, if you're following in the Pew Bible. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling claws, and laid him in a manger 
Here's where the trouble sets in. Because there was no room for them, no place for them in the, and it says in there in English, in, and it's just plain mistranslated. Just plain mistranslated. There's no way around it. King James made a mistake, and we just cling to it like nobody's business. And I'll prove it to you from the text in English. All right? So the same word that's right here is used another time in Luke, but it's not used to talk about a hotel. Luke does talk about a hotel. I'll show you that first. That's in Luke chapter 10, verse 34. Let's look. At Luke, Luke's a smart dude. Luke knew lots of Greek, and he liked to show it off. In fact, when you're learning Greek at the seminary, they tell you, don't read Luke. It's too hard. Too many words. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, this is at the end of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the guy gets... Racked by thieves, the priest, the Levi won't help him, but the Samaritan comes, helps him, puts him on his donkey, takes him. Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his animal, there's a donkey, and brought him to an inn, there it is, and took care of him. That word in Greek is pondokeon, pondokeon, it means hotel. Now, wouldn't have been like a day's inn. You might have been sharing a room with someone you didn't know, some straw on the ground, um, kind of messy and smelly, right? A little different than what you think of, but nonetheless, it'd be a place where travelers go, they give money, they get a corner to sleep in, they get a hot meal. That's an inn. But the word that was used back in verse, uh, or chapter 2, about where Mary's got Joseph, or Mary's got Jesus, that word is not pandokeon, that word is katalima. You've got to remember that. But you got to know that Catalima does get used by Luke again in Luke 22, verse 11. This is page 881, if you want to turn there. I'm going to. 22, verse 11, Jesus says to his disciples, Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Wherever the guest room is, where I may eat my Passover with, or excuse me, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then verse 12 says, they'll show you a large room, upper room, finished, furnished, prepare the Passover there. So guess which word there is the same word? It's, it's upper room, right? guest room. So now take this word, katalima. Run it back into Mary's story. Verse 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the upper room. Okay. What does that mean? In the ancient world, houses were basically one room. They were square. They had one or two doors. And on the main level, they had a lowered part of the floor that you had to go down some stairs to get to before you go to the door. I'll explain that in a moment. You come in, you go up these little stairs out of this kind of receiving spot, and then there's a main floor there, and then it's square. It's just, that's it, right? But if you had enough money, you'd make use of your roof. And so what you do is you put a little wall up on your roof, build some stairs on the outside of your house, to get up to your roof, maybe put a ceiling on that. Put a door out there. Now you got an upper room. It's a special room. It's a fine place. It's where the nice stuff is. Kids don't play there very often, that kind of thing. Yeah? You might set it aside for a meal, or if you're a king, it's kind of where you're going to have your bedroom, that kind of thing. 
All right. So if you can imagine Mary and Joseph coming into town, everything is fine. They're going to Bethlehem. They're finding their family and their family's house is filled with people. Because, in fact, the whole family has come back to pay their taxes. Don't, can't you wait for the day the IRS says to do this? By the way, go back to your hometown. Jeez. Anyhow, all right. the place is full, right? And so there's not a lot of room in the upper room. And, and think about this, too. Mary's now got to give birth. What are we, do? What are we going to do? We have all the guys stand around and watch. Maybe all the guys go in the upper room. And all the women stay in the lower room. Yeah, where there can have to be some privacy and things like that. Either way, Mary's just downstairs. That's the story. Mary is downstairs, and because she's downstairs, they decide to lay him in a manger because everybody's got a manger in their living room. And I mean it. That's actually true. When you come into the old world house and you're on this lowered spot, that's because it's like your garage, but it's not for your car. It's for your animals, So you walk in this front door with your animals and they all stay in this lowered spot. You shut the door, you bar it because you don't got a key and you're bringing the animals inside because you leave them outside, someone's going to steal them. So you bring those animals in and then you go over to your little stairwell that takes you up above the animals on a slightly raised floor. But like many people in the ancient world, you would have some straw around for either sitting on but also for feeding the animals. And so then you're going to kick some of that straw off the floor into a little crevice beside the lowered portion. That'd be your manger. You feed your animals. You start working on your own meal. It's kind of cold outside tonight, but thank goodness we got an ox because that's a heater. All of this is the way it still kind of is in parts of the world. And it was definitely the way there. So the sign the angels give to the shepherds is indeed, you're going to find this baby in a manger. And it's not like that was normal. And it certainly does proclaim the humility of our king. So don't let that be taken away by what I just did. The story of Jesus' birth is the story of a man born to die. Of a king who gave up his crown, his riches, his wealth, his power in order to take the place of a slave and buy that slave back from the dead. And him being put in the manger, not only for mankind, but for the ox and the ass and the sheep and the ducks and the trees and the stars and all the rest of it. It's right there in that moment. So don't don't lose that just because it doesn't look like a German manger from 1500s, all right? Some wooden thing in a shack outside. But let's maybe ask ourselves again, why do we believe the innkeeper story, the mean old innkeeper, right? Why do you believe that? Do you have to believe that? Why should you believe otherwise? And I don't care if you believe it or not. What I care about is whether you test it by the scriptures. I want you to learn to ask what's the Bible say. And then whatever it says, like, that's probably enough. And I can imagine some other stuff, however I want to imagine it. But what I'm going to believe is what it says. What I'm going to act on is what it says. What I'm going to stake my life on is what it says. How do you know what a myth is? Right? How do you know whether or not you're being deceived? The good news of Jesus Christ is that he will never deceive you. There's no darkness in him at all. He doesn't lie. 
He doesn't twist, no tricks. He didn't have to do this. He didn't have to come down. But he did. Why? Because he wants you. Because he wants you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.